Can I pay for your parking? You sure can. Thanks so much. No, you coming to visit someone in the hospital is the amazing thing. This is a little thing. Have you already paid? No. I want to pay for your parking. Pardon me? I'm paying for your parking. What is It's quite a little hope. Yeah. So punch in your stuff and then I'll pay for it. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. You betcha. The juice is the best. I'm coming to visit my very sick brother. He's uh, dying from congestive heart failure. Oh. Wonderful. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks so much. You betcha. You bet. Thank you. I'll pay it forward to you. Hey, I want to buy your coffee for you. I'm going to pay for your coffee. And this one's on me too. Okay. Okay? Awesome. Just spreading some joy. Now, this guy's going to order like you know, a cappuccino machine too. You should have ordered a bigger drink. Yeah. 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 Merry Christmas. Tell me what you're doing right now. Oh, I'm going to my friend to bless with some biryani and some salad. Before COVID, how many of your neighbors you knew? Uh, before COVID, I only know my left and right neighbors. But now, after, during the COVID, and I got to know all my neighbors around my cul-de-sac. Because you were bringing them food? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. You're a small business owner. Yes, I am. It's been tough, hasn't it? It's been a challenge. It's been a little challenge. We want to bring you some peace. Thank you. So we're brought you some donuts. Awesome. Thanks, Don. Thank yeah, take care. As a small business owner, it hasn't been very peaceful for you, has it? So I just wanted to give you a little flowers to bring some peace to you. There you go. Sorry to interrupt you. It looks like you're on your, you're getting ready to go to church. Tell me a little bit about how you were interrupted this year when you had your little one. So we had this little one during COVID. She's a COVID baby. She came in September. Um, and we were just so blessed by the community. We had multiple people um, bringing us meals. We've actually still had people dropping off meals. And I think it gives 100%. the whole church really an opportunity to actually be the church. It's the church outside of the church building. I'm just wanting to spread some love. <laughs> <laughs> Spread some Christmas love. Thank you. Yay! Oh, oh. Oscar's got my cookie. Some Christmas cheer. <laughs> Yay! Just want to spread some Christmas love. That's so kind of you. Wonderful. Merry Christmas uh, to those of you who are joining us online and also those of you who are here in person worshiping with us on this uh, wonderful Christmas Eve day. Uh, it's been so good to hear stories like we just saw in this video clip of how so many of you are, are just loving on your neighbors and uh, blessing them in different practical ways. Uh, just God bless you for being the church in your community. So um, I'm wondering how many of you have a name that, to your knowledge, means something? I see a few hands out there. Good. Uh, how many of you are still carrying a bit of a grudge against your parents for the name that they gave you? Ah, a few names here and there, too. Different generations have different reasons for what they name their children. And there are all kinds of books these days on what to name uh, your child. 
Uh, the older books usually give you the name followed by the origin and the meaning of the name. Like, uh, for example, um, uh, the name Henry, which happens to be my name, means he who is hissed at with great frequency. Um, that's not true. Uh, if, if you're named Henry, you know, don't hate your parents, okay, because that's not the meaning. Uh, no, actually, Henry actually means uh, ruler of an estate, which is kind of cool when you think about it, although my wife will let you know that I still got a long way to go, live up to it. So, uh, but uh, my point is names usually mean something. But even if a name doesn't have a known meaning, uh, many names have a special meaning to us. Uh, because when we hear them, we immediately think of a host of details or experiences associated with that name. Uh, for example, when I say the name Ford, well, some of you immediately think of your favorite truck or car. Others of you have been thinking about the Premier of Ontario, perhaps. Or maybe you've been thinking about a former president of the United States. If I say the name Hitler, well, immediately you think of a ruthless tyrant. You see, we associate names with our experiences and our impressions. So with that in mind, let me ask you, what comes to your mind when I speak the name Jesus Christ? Who is that baby in the manger to you? Today I want to tell you what Jesus means to me. He has totally changed my life. And I want to tell you why I believe that he is totally trustworthy and why he is the solid rock upon which I stand. I feel impelled to speak to us today about the issue of trust and about who it is we're trusting in with our lives because I can't recall a time, at least not in my lifetime, when our world has become so unmoored from everything we once defined as normal and leaned on for security. The worldwide pandemic that we're experiencing has forced many of us to sit back and to seriously examine and question our values, the direction and the meaning of our life, uh, the way that we're living our lives. And if we're really pursuing the things that are going to matter most to us in the end. Some of us have been battling illness during this time. Others of us have suffered the loss of loved ones. Uh, and because of COVID, weren't even able to be with them in the last um, a few days of their lives. We know people who have lost their job and others who are very concerned about losing their job. There are marriages and families in crisis. And for some, this has been a season of utter loneliness. And in the midst of all of this, Trust seems to be at an all-time low. Have you noticed that? For example, if I were to ask you to list the names of people in politics, in the media, or in some other public leadership role that you trust, I predict that your list would be very small. The fact is, many people don't know who to trust anymore, uh, what's true, uh, what isn't. And this is creating a, a lot of polarization between people, but uh, also a lot of fear and anxiety and uncertainty and feelings of, of hopelessness within people who feel like they're 
it's kind of like drifting further and further out into this sea or this unknown sea uh, without an anchor or a sense of true north. Well, my prayer is that as a result of our time in God's word today, you will realize that the greatest and the wisest decision you will ever make in your life is to put your total trust in Jesus Christ because he is, as we will see, totally trustworthy. Now, a moment ago, I talked about the meaning of names. I just want to go back to that for a minute to kind of introduce us to the passage we're looking at. I want you to think of your best friend for a moment and, uh, you know, your best friend or perhaps your spouse, hopefully in some cases it's both. But um, now every story of how people met is different, of course. But I think it is safe to say that your relationship with that person began with someone just mentioning their name once, uh, perhaps as someone that you might want to meet or should meet. And when you heard that name, it meant absolutely nothing to you other than it was just a name. If they had approached you right about then and asked you to borrow your car or asked you for the keys to your home, you would have went, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't even know you. I'm not going to trust you with my car or my home. But you see, over time, as you got to know that person, as you got to know their character, their nature, you began to trust them. And now, when you hear their name, thoughts of love and trust and affection come immediately to your mind. Well, the psalmist says that the same thing can happen in our relationship with God if we are open to knowing him. In Psalm 9, verse 10, the psalmist is talking about our Lord. And, he said, and this is what he writes. Those who know your name put their trust in you. You see, in the Hebrew language, a person's name means the nature, the character, and the personality of the person, insofar as it is known or revealed to us. And so the psalmist is saying here, if you are open to growing in your understanding of the nature and the character of God, you will increasingly put your trust in God. The question is, are you open to knowing God? Are you open to knowing him more? Well, let me introduce you to the character of my Lord Jesus. Almost eight centuries ago, before Christ was born, Isaiah the prophet prophesied these words in Isaiah 9, 6. I'm going to ask you to stand just for a moment and just join me in reading this very short passage together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Lord Jesus, we ask now that you will teach us about these wonderful names that represent who you are. Soften our hearts, and Lord, guide us in, in, in responding. Give us the courage to respond in the way that you would have us to. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, this passage points out four things about the character of Jesus Christ, which, if understood, will help us to see why he is worthy of our total trust. 
First of all, Jesus is totally trustworthy because he is mighty God. Even though mighty God is stated twice, is, is listed second here by Isaiah, I, I want to start with it because the other three names or the three characteristics that Isaiah gives here uh, hinge on the fact that Jesus is mighty God. Now, there are many reasons for believing in the deity of Jesus Christ. One reason uh, is the amazing miracles that he performed and the power and the authority that he had over nature uh, while he was here on this planet. The second is that Jesus claimed in no uncertain terms to be God. Just prior to his death, agnostic Charles Templeton, uh, who wrote the book Farewell to God, was interviewed by Lee Strobel uh, and asked to talk about what he thought about Jesus. And Templeton became uh, very serious and his body language softened, according to Lee, as if he were talking about an old friend. And this is what he said. Jesus was the greatest human being who ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or readings. The fact is, there are thousands of books and testimonies like this beyond the Bible from some of the greatest intellects, scholars, and authorities down through history that support the fact that Jesus was the greatest, wisest person who ever lived. But none of these will do because Jesus Christ is infinitely more than that. You see, few people today will dispute the fact that Jesus was a good man. Many will admit that he was even a great man, but obviously just a man. Suggest Jesus is anything but a man, and some people will write you off as delusional. But here's the thing. It is utterly inconsistent to call Jesus a good man or a great man, a prophet without peril, a model of morality, and then go on to say, but I don't believe that he is the Son of God. And here's why. Because this good, moral, loving teacher claimed in no uncertain terms that he is the Son of God. And that assertion doesn't give people the option to conclude that he is simply a good guy. The truth is, Jesus made some outrageous claims about himself in which he was sending a very clear message that he was more than just a teacher or a prophet. For example, other religious leaders pointed people away from themselves and they would say things like, this is the truth of the universe as I perceive it. Or, this is the way you ought to go. Jesus, on the other hand, pointed people toward himself, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, he was saying, trust me. He was saying, follow me. He was the only significant religious leader to say such things. In John chapter 8, he said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
The religious leaders of his day tried to kill him on at least two occasions because he claimed to be God. In John chapter 5, for example, we read this. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Folks, remember this. Jesus was not crucified because he did miracles or because he challenged uh, and embarrassed the Jewish religious leaders of his day uh, with their own hypocrisy. No, Jesus was crucified because he claimed to be God. Now, I trust that you're seeing the implications of this. Jesus is either the Lord and God as he claimed to be, or he is the greatest liar or lunatic that ever lived. It is utterly inconsistent to conclude that he's the greatest person who ever lived and to deny he is God because he clearly claimed to be God. Now the third and the greatest evidence really for Christ's deity is his resurrection. The fact that he rose again as he said he would. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul makes a very compelling argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, an argument very similar to the one that I just articulated. But he applies it this time to the resurrection. And if I were to summarize Paul's argument, it would go like this. Jesus is either alive and who he said he is, or he is the world's greatest fraud. If he didn't conquer death, if he's still dead in the, do in the tomb, then he's a liar. His claims are false. He isn't God. He can't save us from our sins. And our faith as Christians is futile. We may as well stop preaching the gospel. We may as well pack it in and close the doors for good. If Jesus is still in the tomb, then there is no hope beyond the grave. When we die, our candle goes out, and that's all she wrote. It's all over. But, but, says Paul in verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Amen? Yes. And after he makes that statement, he goes on to explain that this isn't fable, this isn't fiction, but after his resurrection, Jesus appeared not only to his disciples and some of his close friends, many, by the way, who died for their belief in the resurrected Christ, but Jesus also appeared to, more, to, to, appeared to hundreds of people at the same time, many of whom are still alive, uh, I'm sorry, many of whom were still alive at the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. People who could have either produced Christ's body and there, thereby, of course, proved that, he, uh, that he's dead, or people who could have flat out let the ancient world know at that time what Paul wrote was blatantly false. But the reality is, since that time, right up to our present day, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ continues to be overwhelmingly compelling. Friends, he lives. And that changes everything. Because he lives, 
because he rose from the grave as he said he would, it proves that he is our mighty living God. Because he lives means that his teaching and his promises and his claims that we find in the scriptures are true and they are trustworthy. Because he lives, he is worthy and able as our mighty God to forgive us of our sins and by his grace give us the freedom and the ability to start over again. Because he lives means that his power is greater than our problems. Because he lives means that we need not fear death, that this life is not the end, and if we put our trust in him, we too shall live forever with him in the next life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die in this life, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I believe Jesus is totally trustworthy because he is mighty God. Furthermore, Isaiah said that he would be called Wonderful Counselor. Because Jesus is mighty God, you can trust him to be the wonderful counselor, not a wonderful counselor, but the wonderful counselor. Many of you, I'm sure, have concerns on your mind today, concerns about employment, about finances, about making ends meet, concern about your marriage and family, concerns about your values. What are you going to rest your life on? Concerns about the meaning and direction of your life, and perhaps even concerns about your emotional and spiritual health. So let me ask you, who are you going with those concerns? Who are you going to? Whose counsel are you following? Who are you trusting in? Jesus invites us all to trust in him and his counsel and his direction for life. My observation is, is that far too many people are placing their faith and trust in everything and everyone else. It just seems that they're kind of picking and choosing here and there whatever they think is their idea of truth and whatever they're kind of prepared to follow. Not that receiving counsel from others is wrong. It's just that if their wisdom doesn't align with God's wisdom, then you will ultimately be moving further and further away from the freedom and joy that God wants for you and more and more closer to greater bondage and pain. Jesus said, know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he also said, I am the truth. He's saying, come to me first. Come to me often as your counselor and your guide. Trust in me. Believe me. You know, recently, the American Bible Society, with the assistance of Harvard University, they did a survey of over a 1,000 people during the pandemic, and they discovered that people who read the Bible frequently rated themselves 33% more hopeful than people who didn't read the Bible at all or did so very infrequently. Tyler uh, Vanderweel, director of the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University, he stated that according to their research, Bible reading 
along with other forms of community and spiritual uh, growth, uh, such as going to church, participating in a small group, play an important and, in his words, profound role in contributing to people's well-being in general, and especially so during the pandemic. This is just evidence that affirms what Jesus, our wonderful counselor, wants us to understand. You know, in John 10.10, he said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. In other words, Jesus wants us to live life to the fullest. He has our best interest at heart in all things. And it's with that in mind that he wants us to seek his wisdom in the scriptures first rather than as a last resort, which unfortunately I find that those of us in North America, the foundation upon which is based upon the scriptures, we're going to the scriptures as a last resort rather than as the first uh, resort. Because if we go to the scriptures as Christ wants us to, we're going to receive not just true wisdom and direction, but we're going to get hope and peace for life that will withstand the storms of life and the test of time. Then thirdly, Isaiah said that he would be called the everlasting father. Now, in this, Isaiah is, is not suggesting that Jesus is the first person of the Godhead. In other words, God the Father. No, Jesus is God the Son. The title Father that's given here to Jesus makes reference to his relationship to us. Jesus is the Father of the new kingdom, the church, forever. In this sense, Christ is the spiritual father of all Christians. He teaches us. He guides us. He cares for us in a, loving, uh, in a, in a way that a loving father uh, would. For example, um, he is always with us. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And friends, he is. Even when it feels like we're all alone, when it feels like we've been forgotten. We are not alone. We have not been forgotten because he, the living God, is with us. In Matthew 28, 20, the last words that Jesus spoke before he ascended to heaven, he said, and surely I am with you always. Earthly fathers may let us down, but Jesus is always present and there for us. We can trust him in this. We may be disappointed at the smallness of the results of our prayers. We may be impatient in our spirit, wondering why God doesn't change our situation. But friends, what I want to tell you is don't let go of the light. As someone who has struggled with health issues this past year, I challenge you not to let go of the light of Jesus because if you do, all that you will have left is darkness. And I'm telling you, that is a hopeless and a despairing place to be. No friend, no matter how hard your circumstances, hold on to him, remembering that he is still on the throne. He is still in control, that his promises are true, and that he is with you. Even if it seems like he's a million miles away, 
even if it seems that he doesn't understand, know and believe that he is and that he does understand. He knows how we are formed. He knows what it means to be human. He can identify with us. It's one of the miracles of the incarnation, God with us. I remind you, Jesus didn't have to, but it was out of love for us that he left the glory of heaven. He became fully human and he experienced life as we know it. He too grew as a child. He learned to talk. He skinned his knees when he fell as a boy. He likely cried when a good friend moved away. History tells us that his earthly father, Joseph, died prematurely. And so Jesus knew what it was like to lose a father and to grow up without an earthly father. He experienced hunger pains and undoubtedly felt the sting of rejection no different than any of us and the pain of being deserted by people that he trusted and thought were loyal friends. He wept at the grave of a dear friend. He understands, friends. He identifies fully. And he cares whether we see it or not. Even though he may not be responding the way we want or when we want, we can know that he is walking with us through the darkest valleys. So lean into him and refuse to let go. Because he is our mighty God, we can trust him to be our wonderful counselor and also our everlasting father. And then finally, Isaiah said that Jesus would be called the Prince of Peace. You know, people think that what's wrong with our world is a political problem or it's an economic or it's an ed educational problem. And of course, there's some truth to this perspective. But the reason there's so little peace on earth, folks, is because we have a heart problem. And by heart problem, I'm talking about that part of us that would rather rule than serve, that would rather have than give, that would rather be honored than to honor others, that would rather maintain control of our lives than to trust God with our lives. And so over 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to change the world by changing us. All the way down through history, as people were introduced to Jesus, and they grew in their friendship with Jesus, they increasingly began to reflect the character of Jesus. The greedy became more generous. The cruel became kinder. The impatient became more patient. The harsh became gentler. The proud became humbler. And the bitter and the resentful became gracious and forgiving. And many began to follow the example of Christ and the way of Christ by elevating the value of human life, by meeting the needs of the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the uneducated, the sick, and by coming against injustice, racism, and abuse. And friend, in the same way, Jesus wants to bring peace on earth. Jesus wants to bring peace to your world. 
to your home through you by first transforming your heart with his grace and his forgiveness. You see, our fundamental heart problem is pride. It's this sense of self-sufficiency. We all have this natural desire to, to be our own God, which is really this, this desire to be in total control of what goes on in our lives, rather than to trust the true and living God with our lives, the one who created us and knows us better than we even know ourselves. The Bible calls this prideful attitude sin, and it's really what separates us from God. Sin is the attitude that defiantly says to God, I just don't want you in my life. I don't want you telling me what to do. I want to live my life the way I want to live it, and I don't want your influence in my life. It is that defiance that fundamentally separates us from God and what the Bible calls sin. And yet here's the thing. Until we come to the place of surrender and humbly acknowledge that he is God and we're not, we will never experience the peace, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that he wants for our lives because we're trying to be someone that we were never created to be. Jesus taught that the key to a real peace and satisfaction in life is found in having the attitude of a little child. In Matthew 18, 2, Jesus called a little child to himself, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God unless you change and become like little children. Now, in today's world, this idea just seems ridiculous. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all. But Jesus is saying here that his kingdom functions polar opposite to that of our world. In his kingdom, the people who will experience the greatest peace and satisfaction in life, the people who will, that he's going to use the most to make an eternal impact are those who, like little children, totally depend and trust in him and are humble enough to acknowledge that they need his help and his guidance continually and whose identity and whose value is based on what God says about them rather than what their culture or what other people around them say about them. All that to say this. Jesus wants to be more than just another name to you. He wants to be the source of true peace and joy and victory in your life. He wants to be your friend. But you have a choice to make. You can focus on your problems or on the problem solver. You can wrestle with your fears and anxieties and disappointments or you can rest in the character of Jesus Christ the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. I'll close with this. Dr. George McCausland was one of the greatest YMC directors this world has ever seen. But for many years he knew what it meant to bear the weight of what he felt 
was the weight of the whole world on his shoulders. He was serving a YMCA near Pittsburgh, which was losing memberships, it was experiencing severe financial problems, enduring terrible staff uh, relational issues. And he found himself working about 85 hours a week, getting little sleep at night. And when he took time off, all he did was worry about what was going on at work. He went to a therapist who told him that he was on the verge of having a nervous breakdown. And so he took some time off. And one afternoon, he grabbed a pad and a pen and he took a walk in the Pennsylvania woods. And after a long walk, he sat down under a tree and he sighed. And for the first time in months, he could feel his tight neck and body start to relax and unwind. He got out his pad and his pen, and he wrote down all of his burdens and his frustrations, all the things that were concerning him. And then he made a decision that would forever change his life. He decided to surrender control of his life completely to God, including his career aspirations, his reputation, his fears, his burdens and his frustrations, his disappointments and his failures, his feelings of inadequacy, everything, all of it, he gave to God. And then to cement his decision, he wrote God a letter. And this is what it was, it was a really short letter. He said, Dear God, today I hereby resign as general manager of the universe. Love, George. And George went on to write, and wonder of wonders, God accepted my resignation. I guess I'm wondering if there's anyone listening to me right now who needs to resign as general manager of your universe. Is there anyone here who's trying to fix every problem, trying to help every person get their life straightened out, trying to meet every expectation, make up for every disappointment and failure? Is there anyone here who's trying to protect their reputation or trying to come up with a contingency plan for every fear and every feeling of inadequacy? Is there anybody who feels like they have the weight of the world on their shoulders? I can tell you I have felt that way many times in my life. And I felt it especially at different times this past year for various reasons. As I try to, in one area, give leadership to our church's response to this pandemic and having to make decisions that would affect people's livelihood and that people would not agree with, like whether we should stay open or whether we should close and all those issues. And sometimes, you know, you just feel like you're kind of out there by yourself. 
And I can tell you that the only way that I finally found peace from the emotional turmoil and the sleepless nights was to let go and to let God do what I knew only he could do. You see, God never meant for us to carry the weight of all the world on our shoulders. Isaiah tells us that it was Jesus that came to bear all the weight on his shoulders. And he will if we'll release it to him. But you see, this is where the rub comes. You can know and you can believe all that you've heard me say today. But if you don't act on it, your heart will remain unchanged. Your heart will remain unchanged and you will remain far from God and his ultimate best for you. You have to make a decision, friends, about Jesus. I mean, we see this all the way through Scripture, even in the Christmas story. God comes to Mary and Joseph, and he says, I want you to be part of my story. And yes, there will be a cost. Your life may not turn out the way that you dreamed that it would, but you will never regret trusting me with your life. So I want to know, Mary. I want to know, Joseph. Will you trust me? Will you follow me? Yes or no? Jesus comes to each of his disciples and he says, following me will cost you everything. In fact, it will include your very life. But I promise you, it will be a life filled with high faith adventures and with no regrets when it's all said and done. So what's your decision, Peter? What's your decision, James? What's your decision, John? Will you trust me? Will you follow me no matter what? Yes or no? And you see, in the same way, Jesus is now looking you in the eye. And he's saying, will you trust me with your life and follow me? Yes or no? Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to ask you again as you look at the chaos, the world that we're living in, in whom are you really trusting? Who's your anchor upon which you stand? I stand before you as one who can attest to the fact that I have found Jesus to be totally faithful and trustworthy in my life. He has freed me from the sin and the regret of my past. Despite many challenges in my life, he's given me the power to live in victory, freedom, and joy in this life. And he's given me a hope and a peace about where I'm going in the next life. And what he's done for me, friends, what he's done for millions of others, he wants to do for you. But it's going to require that you make a decision about Jesus and his invitation to trust him. I want to give you an opportunity to talk to him right now in your own way and to respond to his invitation.
In a moment, our worship team will be reminding us through song who our God is, that he is a miracle worker, that he is a promise keeper, that he is light in the darkness. That's what Jesus said. A God who is working behind the scenes to make a way, even when we don't see it, we don't feel it, even when we've given up, he is at work, he's still working. I challenge you to take this God-ordained moment and to ask Jesus to forgive you, to come into your life, and to put your total trust in him. You'll never regret doing so. God bless you as you follow his lead.